Chapter Fifteen of the Old Curiosity Shop. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. The Old Curiosity Shop by Charles Dickens. Chapter Fifteen. Often, while they were yet pacing the silent streets of the town on the morning of their departure, the child trembled with a mingled sensation of hope and fear, as in some far-off figure, imperfectly seen in the clear distance, her fancy traced a likeness to honest Kit. But although she would gladly have given him her hand, and thanked him for what he had said at their last meeting, it was always a relief to find, when they came nearer to each other, that the person who approached was not he, but a stranger. For even if she had not dreaded the effect which the sight of him might have wrought upon her fellow-traveller, she felt that to bid farewell to anybody now, and most of all to him who had been so faithful and so true, was more than she could bear. It was enough to leave dumb things behind, and objects that were insensible both to her love and sorrow, to have parted from her only other friend upon the threshold of that wild journey, would have wrung her heart indeed. Why is it that we can better bear to part in spirit than in body, and while we have the fortitude to act farewell, have not the nerve to say it? On the eve of long voyages, or an absence of many years, friends who are tenderly attached will separate with the usual look, the usual pressure of the hand, planning one final interview for the morrow, while each well knows that it is but a poor feint to save the pain of uttering that one word, and that the meeting will never be. Should possibilities be worse to bear than certainties? We do not shun our dying friends. The not having distinctly taken leave of one among them, whom we left in all kindness and affection, will often embitter the whole remainder of a life. The town was glad with morning light. Places that had shown ugly and distrustful all night long now wore a smile and sparkling sunbeams dancing on chamber windows, and twinkling through blind and curtain before sleepers' eyes, shed light even into dreams, and chased away the shadows of the night. Birds in hot rooms, covered up close and dark, felt it was morning, and chafed and grew restless in their little cells. Bright-eyed mice crept back to their tiny homes, and nestled timidly together. The sleek house-cat, forgetful of her prey, sat winking at the rays of sun starting through keyhole and cranny in the door, and longed for her stealthy run and warm, sleek bask outside. The nobler beasts, confined in dens, stood motionless behind their bars, and gazed on fluttering boughs, and sunshine peeping through some little window, with eyes in which old forests gleamed, then trod impatiently the track their prisoned feet had worn, and stopped and gazed again. Men, in their dungeons, stretched their cramp-cold limbs, and cursed the stone that no bright sky could warm. The flowers that sleep by night opened their gentle eyes and turned them to the day. The light, creation's mind, was everywhere, and all things owned its power. The two pilgrims, often pressing each other's hands, or exchanging a smile or cheerful look, pursued their way in silence. Bright and happy as it was, there was something solemn in the long, deserted streets, from which, like bodies without souls, all habitual character and expression had departed, leaving but one dead uniform repose that made them all alike. All was so still at that early hour, that the few pale people whom they met, 
seemed as much unsuited to the scene as the sickly lamp which had been here and there left burning, was powerless and faint in the full glory of the sun. Before they had penetrated very far into the labyrinth of men's abodes which yet lay between them and the outskirts, this aspect began to melt away, and noise and bustle to usurp its place. Some straggling carts and coaches rumbling by, first broke the charm, then others came, then others yet more active, then a crowd. The wonder was, at first, to see a tradesman's window open, but it was a rare thing soon to see one closed. Then smoke rose slowly from the chimneys, and sashes were thrown up to let in air, and doors were opened, and servant-girls, looking lazily in all directions but their brooms, scattered brown clouds of dust into the eyes of shrinking passengers, or listened disconsolately to milkmen, who spoke of country fairs, and told of wagons in the mews, with awnings and all things complete, and gallant swains to boot, which another hour would see upon their journey. This quarter past, they came upon the haunts of commerce and great traffic, where many people were resorting, and business was already rife. The old man looked about him with a startled and bewildered gaze, for these were places that he hoped to shun. He pressed his finger on his lip, and drew the child along by narrow courts and winding ways, nor did he seem at ease until they had left it far behind often casting a backward look towards it, murmuring that ruin and self-murder were crouching in every street, and would follow if they scented them, and that they could not fly too fast. Again this quarter passed. They came upon a straggling neighbourhood, where the mean houses parcelled off in rooms, and windows patched with rags and paper, told of the populous poverty that sheltered there. The shops sold goods that only poverty could buy, and sellers and buyers were pinched and griped alike. Here were poor streets, where faded gentility essayed with scanty space, and shipwrecked means to make its last feeble stand. But tax-gatherer and creditor came there as elsewhere, and the poverty that yet faintly struggled was hardly less squalid and manifest than that which had long ago submitted and given up the game. This was a wide, wide track, for the humble followers of the camp of wealth pitched their tents round about it for many a mile. But its character was still the same. Damp, rotten houses, many to let, many yet building, many half-built and mouldering away, lodgings where it would be hard to tell which needed pity most, those who let or those who came to take. Children, scantily fed and clothed, spread over every street, and sprawling in the dust, scolding mothers, stamping their slipshod feet with noisy threats upon the pavement, shabby fathers, hurrying with dispirited looks to the occupation which brought them daily bread, and little more, mangling women, washerwomen, cobblers, tailors, chandlers, driving their trades in parlours and kitchens and back-room and garrets, and sometimes all of them under the same roof brick-fields, skirting gardens, paled with staves of old casks, or timber pillaged from houses burnt down, and blackened and blistered by the flames, mounds of dockweed, nettles, coarse grass, and oyster-shells, heaped in rank confusion, small dissenting chapels to teach, with no lack of illustration, the miseries of earth, and plenty of new churches erected with as little superfluous wealth to show the way to heaven. At length these streets, becoming more straggling yet, dwindled and dwindled away, until there were only small garden patches bordering the road, 
with many a summer-house innocent of paint and built of old timber, or some fragments of a boat, green as the tough cabbage-stalks that grew about it, and grottoed at the seams with toadstools and tight-sticking snails. To these succeeded pert cottages, two and two, with plots of ground in front, laid out in angular beds, with stiff box borders and narrow paths between, where footstep never strayed to make the gravel rough. Then came the public-house, freshly painted in green and white, with tea-gardens and a bowling-green, spurning its old neighbour with the horse-trough where the wagon stopped. Then fields, and then some houses, one by one, of goodly size with lawns, some even with a lodge, where dwelt a porter and his wife. Then came a turnpike, then fields again with trees and haystacks, then a hill, and on the top of that the traveller might stop and, looking back at old St. Paul's, looming through the smoke, its cross-peeping above the cloud, if the day were clear, and glittering in the sun, and casting his eyes upon the babel out of which it grew, until he traced it down to the furthest outposts of the invading army of bricks and mortar, whose station lay for the present nearly at his feet, might feel at last that he was clear of London. Near such a spot as this, and in a pleasant field, the old man and his little guide, if guide she were, who knew not whither they were bound, sat down to rest. She had had the precaution to furnish a basket with some slices of bread and meat, and here they made their frugal breakfast. The freshness of the day, the singing of the birds, the beauty of the waving grass, the deep green leaves, the wild flowers, and the thousand exquisite scents and sounds that floated in the air, deep joys to most of us, but most of all to those whose life is in a crowd, or who live solitarily in great cities, as in the bucket of a human well, sunk into their breasts, and made them very glad. The child had repeated her artless prayers once that morning, more earnestly, perhaps, than she had ever done in all her life. But as she felt all this, they rose to her lips again. The old man took off his hat. He had no memory for the words, but he said Amen, and that they were very good. There had been an old copy of The Pilgrim's Progress, with strange plates, upon a shelf at home, over which he had often pored whole evenings, wondering whether it was true in every word, and where those distant countries with the curious names might be. As she looked back upon the place they had left, one part of it came strongly on her mind. "'Dear Grandfather,' she said, "'only that this place is prettier, and a great deal better than the real one. If that in the book is like it, I feel as if we were both Christian, and laid down on this grass all the cares and troubles we brought with us, never to take them up again. No, never to return, never to return, replied the old man, waving his hand towards the city. Thou and I are free of it now, Nell. They shall never lure us back. Are you tired? said the child. "'Are you sure you don't feel ill from this long walk?' "'I shall never feel ill again, now that we are once away,' was his reply. "'Let us be stirring, Nell. We must be further away, a long, long way further. We are too near to stop and be at rest. Come.' There was a pool of clear water in the field, in which the child laved her hands and face, and cooled her feet before setting forth to walk again. 
She would have the old man refresh himself in this way, too, and, making him sit down upon the grass, cast the water on him with her hands, and dried it with her simple dress. "'I can do nothing for myself, my darling,' said the grandfather. "'I don't know how it is. I could once, but the time's gone. Don't leave me, Nell. Say that thou'lt not leave me. I loved thee all the while, indeed I did. If I lose thee too, my dear, I must die." He laid his head upon her shoulder, and moaned piteously. The time had been, and a very few days before, when the child could not have restrained her tears, and must have wept with him. But now she soothed him with gentle and tender words, smiled at his thinking they could ever part, and rallied him cheerfully upon the jest. He was soon calmed and fell asleep, singing to himself in a low voice, like a little child. He awoke refreshed, and they continued their journey. The road was pleasant, lying between beautiful pastures and fields of corn, about which, poised high in the clear blue sky, the lark trilled out her happy song. The air came laden with the fragrance it caught upon its way, and the bees, upborne upon its scented breath, hummed forth their drowsy satisfaction as they floated by. They were now in the open country. The houses were very few and scattered at long intervals, often miles apart. Occasionally they came upon a cluster of poor cottages, some with a chair or low board put across the open door to keep the scrambling children from the road, others shut up close while all the family were working in the fields. These were often the commencement of a little village, and after an interval came a wheelwright's shed, or perhaps a blacksmith's forge, then a thriving farm with sleepy cows lying about the yard, and horses peering over the low wall, and scampering away when harnessed horses passed upon the road, as though in triumph at their freedom. There were dull pigs, too, turning up the ground in search of dainty food, and grunting their monotonous grumblings as they prowled about, or crossed each other in their quest, plump pigeons skimming round the roof or strutting on the eaves, and ducks and geese, far more graceful in their own conceit, waddling awkwardly about the edges of the pond, or sailing glibly on its surface. The farmyard passed, then came the little inn, the humbler beer-shop, and the village tradesmen's, then the lawyers and the parsons, at whose dread names the beer-shop trembled. The church then peeped out modestly from a clump of trees, then there were a few more cottages, then the cage and pound, and not unfrequently, on a bank by the wayside, a deep old dusty well. Then came the trim-hedged fields on either hand, and the open road again. They walked all day, and slept that night at a small cottage where beds were let to travellers. Next morning they were afoot again, and though jaded at first, and very tired, recovered before long, and proceeded briskly forward. They often stopped to rest, but only for a short space at a time, and still kept on, having had but slight refreshment since the morning. It was nearly five o'clock in the afternoon, when, drawing near another cluster of labourers' huts, the child looked wistfully in each, doubtful at which to ask for permission to rest a while and buy a draught of milk. It was not easy to determine, for she was timid and fearful of being repulsed. Here was a crying child, and there a noisy wife. In this the people seemed too poor, in that too many. 
At length she stopped at one where the family were seated round the table, chiefly because there was an old man sitting in a cushioned chair beside the hearth, and she thought he was a grandfather, and would feel for hers. There were besides the cottager and his wife, and three young sturdy children, brown as berries. The request was no sooner preferred than granted. The eldest boy ran out to fetch some milk, the second dragged two stools towards the door, and the youngest crept to his mother's gown, and looked at the strangers from beneath his sunburnt hand. "'God save you, master,' said the old cottager, in a thin, piping voice. "'Are you travelling far?' "'Yes, sir, a long way,' replied the child, for her grandfather appealed to her. "'From London?' inquired the old man. The child said yes. Ah, he had been in London many a time, used to go there often once with wagons. It was nigh two-and-thirty year since he had been there last, and he did hear say there were great changes. Like enough, he had changed himself since then. Two-and-thirty year was a long time, and eighty-four a great age though there were some he had known that had lived to very hard upon a hundred, and not so hearty as he, neither. No, nothing like it. "'Sit thee down, master, in the elbow-chair,' said the old man, knocking his stick upon the brick-floor, and trying to do so sharply. "'Take a pinch out of that box. I don't take much myself, for it comes dear.' "'But I find it wakes me up sometimes, and you're but a boy to me. "'I should have a son pretty nigh as old as you if he'd lived, "'but they listed him for a soldier. "'He come back home, though, for all he had but one poor leg. "'He always said he'd be buried near the sundial he used to climb upon when he was a baby.' did my poor boy, and his words come true. You can see the place with your own eyes. We've kept the turf up ever since." He shook his head, and looking at his daughter with watery eyes, said she needn't be afraid that he was going to talk about that any more. He didn't wish to trouble nobody, and if he had troubled anybody by what he said, he asked pardon. That was all. The milk arrived, and the child producing her little basket, and selecting its best fragments for her grandfather, they made a hearty meal. The furniture of the room was very homely, of course. A few rough chairs and a table, a corner covered with their little stock of crockery and delf, a gaudy tea-tray, representing a lady in bright red, walking out with a very blue parasol, a few common coloured scripture subjects and frames upon the wall and chimney, an old dwarf clothes-press and an eight-day clock, with a few bright saucepans and a kettle, comprised the whole. But everything was clean and neat, and as the child glanced round, she felt a tranquil air of comfort and content, to which she had long been unaccustomed. "'How far is it to any town or village?' she asked of the husband. "'A matter of good five mile, me dear,' was the reply. "'But you're not going on to-night.' "'Yes, yes, Nell,' said the old man hastily, urging her too by signs. 
further on further on darling further away if we walk till midnight there's a good barn hard by master said the man or this traveller's lodging i know at the plough and arrow excuse me but you do seem a little tired unless you're very anxious to get on yes yes we are returned the old man fretfully further away dear nell pray further away we must go on indeed said the child yielding to his restless wish we thank you very much but we cannot stop so soon i am quite ready grandfather but the woman had observed from the young wanderer's gate that one of her little feet was blistered and sore and being a woman and a mother too she would not suffer her to go until she had washed the place and applied some simple remedy which she did so carefully and with such a gentle hand rough-grained and hard though it was with work that the child's heart was too full to admit of her saying more than a fervent god bless you nor could she look back nor trust herself to speak until they had left the cottage some distance behind when she turned her head she saw that the whole family even the old grandfather were standing in the road watching them as they went and so with many waves of the hand and cheering nods and on one side at least not without tears they parted company they trudged forward more slowly and painfully than they had done yet for another mile or thereabouts when they heard the sound of wheels behind them and looking round observed an empty cart approaching pretty briskly the driver on coming up to them stopped his horse and looked earnestly at nell didn't you stop to rest at a cottage yonder he said yes sir replied the child ah they asked me to look out for you said the man i'm going your way give me your hand jump up master this was a great relief for they were very much fatigued and could scarcely crawl along to them the jolting cart was a luxurious carriage and the ride the most delicious in the world nell had scarcely settled herself on a little heap of straw in one corner when she fell asleep for the first time that day she was awakened by the stopping of the cart which was about to turn up a by-lane the driver kindly got down to help her out and pointing to some trees at a very short distance before them said that the town lay there and that they had better take the path which they would see leading through the churchyard accordingly towards this spot they directed their weary steps End of chapter 15